There's a war that is raging around us, whether we see it with our visible eyes or not, but we do see glimpses of just war in our world. Last Saturday, February the 8th, two of our U.S. military members were killed in Afghanistan as a terrorist disguised in an Afghani uh, army uh, uniform came into an area where Afghani soldiers and the United States soldiers were, and he killed two of them, killed and injured many of the Afghani soldiers. There's a war that's going on. But in a much broader scope than just nation against nation, there is a major cosmological war that's going on today of God against the evil one, of light against darkness, of God's kingdom against the kingdom of darkness and the one who is the prince of the power of the air. There is a real battle of good and evil that goes on. This is often played out and can be played out in our own personal life. If you're a believer and have come to know Jesus as your Savior, you have three major enemies. The first enemy is the world. The world seeks to attack and say, hey, the Bible is irrelevant. If you believe in Jesus, you are just a a bigot and closed-minded. If you believe in moral absolutes that the things morally that the Bible teaches us, then you're just old-fashioned and out of touch. The world attacks. But not only does the world attack, but the world allures. There's the bright lights and the temptations that come all around us. There's the temptation for more money or more power that, that all shine around us. There's the temptation for pleasure and things that feed our flesh all around us. The world attacks and the world allures. But not only are we in a battle with the world, but we're in a battle with our own flesh. Our flesh is our the unredeemed part of our humanity that says, I still want to do what I want to do and be my own boss. I want to sit on my own throne. I want to make me happy. It's that part of me that says, I, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what anybody says. I just want to do what feels right to me. And I just want to do because I want to do it. It's that unredeemed part of our life that still shows up with self-centeredness and selfishness and this self-focus and this desire for pleasure. Then we have another enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil can compound the attacks of the world or the allurements of the world. He can put the temptations in front of our flesh out there that seek to, to draw us away from God in temptation. But he also, as John tells us, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to steal the joy of your life. He wants to steal the purpose of your life. He wants to steal, to kill He wants to kill the relationships that are around you. He wants to kill and destroy your relationship with Christ, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your parents. He wants to steal and kill and destroy all of the God, uh, the Spirit working in your life as God is speaking to you. And he says, no, you don't want to do that. He is there. 1 Peter 5.8 says that he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But as Paul writes to the church in, in, in Philippi, he gives them some great challenges on standing together and facing the battle that they are in. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. 
We're going to pick up today in verse number one. Philippians chapter four and verse number one. You can see it's on the page 679 if you have a Bible in front of you. Philippians chapter four, verse number one. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. With that, let's, let's pray. God, we believe that your name is higher and greater. And Lord, we're amazed that you would speak to us today, but I pray for that very thing, that you would take the truth of your word, drive it home in our hearts today, apply it, and God, do a work in the name of Jesus. Amen. Philippians chapter 4 begins with that, verse number 1 begins with the word therefore. He is just in Philippians chapter 3, Paul has told us about how he is forgetting the things that are behind him. He is pressing on with passion. He wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And he says, I'm going to forget those things that are behind me and I'm going to press on for the upward call of Christ. I want to know him. I want to make a difference for him. I want to grow in my relationship with Christ. And out of that passion that I have for Christ, I want to share something with you. Now notice he calls them, Therefore, he says, my beloved and longed for brethren. He calls them beloved. He loves the church at Philippi. He loves the members of this church. He longs to see them. Remember, Paul is in under house arrest. He's in prison, basically, under house arrest in Rome with a soldier attached to, to him by a chain. And he don't have the freedom. He can't see them anymore. But he longs to see them. He calls them my beloved and and longed for brethren. And then he calls them my joy and my crown. He calls these people his joy. I don't know when you bring a child into this world and you look at that little baby. And as your mamas and daddies looked at you when you were a little baby, they looked at you and they just think, oh, that is that is such joy. And then. You know, you watch them begin to say first words and then you get begin to watch them begin to walk and then they begin to run. And then as they're growing, they're just, it's a joy. Every part of this process is a joy. And Paul is saying, wow, as I'm seeing these believers in Philippi grow in the Lord, it is such a joy. They've come to know Jesus as their savior. They've been forgiven of their sin. And now I see them beginning to take baby steps. And now they're taking bigger steps. And now they're sharing their faith. And now they're being tempted and they're standing firm. This is awesome. You are my joy. And then he calls them his crown. He doesn't call them his crown like they're a crown, like, you know, gold crown out of royalty. He's calling them a crown because in a sporting event, they would get a wreath that they would wear as a crown. It was a laurel wreath. And when they competed well in the Olympics or one of their athletic games, then they would get a crown. Paul is saying this, you are the people that I was striving for. I was passionate about reaching and I'm watching you grow. And now you're you're like the reward of an athlete as I was struggling and as I was beaten in Philippi and as I shared the gospel in Philippi, you're just like a, you're like a, a laurel wreath around my head. You're my joy and my crown. 
And then he tells them this, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. That really is the key verb through the first nine verses, to stand fast. As he tells them to stand fast, this is a military term. The picture is is that they need to be rooted and built in and ready for battle. And that's where we are today. We want to see God do something in our personal lives. And we want to see God do something in our church. And so that we have to, we have to have our feet rooted. We have to stand fast on truth and then move forward by faith. And Paul tells us how to do that as we slide through the first nine verses of Philippians chapter four. First off, we do this. We have to stand together in the Lord. We stand together in the Lord. He says in verse number one that they are to stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Again, he uses that word beloved. He loves these folks. He tells them to stand fast and stand together. He's writing to a church here. He's not just writing to a deacon or writing to a teacher or writing to a pastor. He's writing to the whole church, his beloved, his brethren. He's writing to this church and he's saying, look, you need to get your feet planted and you need to stand fast. You probably don't know who Thomas Jonathan Jackson is. Thomas Jonathan Jackson. But if you know anything about history, in 1861, at the first battle of Bull Run, when the Union Army began to to find a weak spot in the Confederate line, General Jackson came and filled that line, and someone said, men... There is General Jackson standing like a stone wall. So you know the name Stonewall Jackson. You've at least heard the name. How did he get that name? That's not just a name. I mean, nobody knows him by Thomas Jonathan Jackson. I mean, I say Thomas Jonathan Jackson and like no one knows who that is. You say Stonewall Jackson. We at least know a little bit about the name. The picture is, is he was someone who stood someone who stood amid the challenge of a of a a proceeding army and the challenge for us is this we have an enemy who seeks to attack and because he seeks to attack we must stand firm we stand fast in the lord together but not only do they need to stand together in the lord but they need to stand united in the lord they need to stand in together Uh, in, in a sense of unity. Notice with me in verse number two, where he says, and I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind. <laughs> I find it interesting here that as probably they're reading through the letter from Paul in, in, the, in, in the church at Philippi, they're reading through this, and all of a sudden he says, I implore you, Odeus, and I implore you, Syntyche, And you can imagine, everyone sits up. I mean, could you imagine getting called out by the Apostle Paul in one of his letters while the pastor's reading that in church? I imagine everybody's standing up now thinking, oh man, I hope he, I hope he don't have something on me. These ladies were workers in the gospel. He says that they were fellow workers in verse number three. But somewhere along the line, these two got off with each other. 
They, they got on the wrong page with each other. Somebody did something. Somebody hurt somebody. And now Paul says, look, if the church is going to have a vibrant testimony in the community and it's going to be able to stand together against the attacks of the evil one, then you must stand Together, there must be unity. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. He prayed, Father, that these may be one. He wants them to be united. And for a church to be ununited damages the testimony outside of the church and it it affects the unity and the spirit inside the church. And you've all been probably or heard about churches that, you know, they fought over color of carpet or somebody disagreed with somebody and it started to get ugly. And you can imagine here Euodius and her crowd on one side and Syntyche on and her crowd on one side. And Paul, as he sits up and writes this, and then the pastor reads it, and he looks over here and he looks over here and he says, Paul uses the word implore two times and says, I implore you, ladies. I implore you, ladies. I urge you with great, great frequency and great passion and great heart to say, get on the same page. I don't know if there's someone that you need to reconcile with in your life, but stand together in unity is important. You know, you can have union and not have unity. You can take two tomcats and tie their tails together and you got union, they're tied together. But I guarantee you, they're not in unity. You can have a couple walk down the aisle and they are in a marital union. That doesn't always mean they're united. Here, Paul calls for the church to be united. Stand together in the Lord. Stand together in unity. Thirdly, we're to stand together in the work of the gospel. As Paul writes and mentions his true companion in verse number three, notice what he says. He says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who, notice, are involved with me in the gospel. Help these women. They labored. They labored with me in the gospel. Paul says, hey, these ladies, and notice he mentions ladies. You know, as we look across the landscape of history, where would our churches be if women didn't stand up and lead in many different areas and serve in many different areas, even our own church? But he mentions, obviously, Euodius and Syntyche and these other fellow workers, these, lab- these women who labored with me in the gospel. Then he mentions Clement, one guy, and then says, and there's lots of fellow workers, and their names are written in the book of life. What's he saying? There's a gospel that needs to be shared. The message of the gospel is this. You can experience forgiveness through Jesus alone. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, you can have your sins forgiven and know that you're going to go to heaven forever. Now the world needs to know that. And so he says, look, I want you to stand firm as the world, the flesh, and the devil come against you. And then I want you to stand together, united. But I don't want you just to become a holy huddle and stop there and say, oh, as long as we stand back here and sing kumbaya together and hold hands and get in a holy huddle, then we're, we're just gonna, we're just gonna surround all the, the troops here and, and, and live until we go to heaven. No, he doesn't say that. 
He says, I want you to go out. I want you to labor for the gospel. Even though it's challenging, even though it's hard, labor for the gospel. You're going to face challenges. You're going to face persecution. Paul's writing from prison. Paul was beaten in Philippi. He was, he was beaten and put in prison. He knew what it was like to labor for the gospel. He knew what it was like to share Christ when he was in prison. Paul knew and he's saying, look, now go. Go, you've got the one message that no one can duplicate and you've got the one message that has internal bearing on it so that men and women can be saved and go to heaven forever. So labor, work, work in the gospel. Work in the gospel and work together. So I had the privilege yesterday of going to Fort Zumwalt East. They had to play the Wizard of Oz yesterday. And some of our students were involved in different areas. And one of our adults actually played in, in the little orchestra that they had yesterday. But you know, you know what it was doing? As I was watching this yesterday, this is what I was thinking about. I was thinking we had one of our students who helped with makeup. She was back in the background. You know, outside of a little blip uh, here, if you didn't read all the fine print that came out in the, in the handout, you would have not known or seen her. There were people that built sets and painted. There were people that, that had their... Uh, their black pants and black shirt that would move props and move sets. And, and, and then there were people that had a part in the play. So Jimmy and Raiden both had parts in the play and they had speaking parts. And so they were very obvious that, that they were there. And, but you know what it took? It took everybody doing what they were supposed to do, laboring together to pull this thing off. Some people had jobs that were seen. Some people had jobs that weren't seen. But the people that had the jobs that were seen couldn't have done what they were going to do without the people laboring back here in the background. And the picture is, is in the church, sometimes we have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. And what we find is, is God calls the whole church to get involved, labor together in the work of the gospel. So you're standing firm. Man, the world is against you. And you're standing together. And you're moving forward with the work of the gospel, sharing Jesus. And then he tells us how, to work, how, that how we are to do that. Notice with me in verse number four. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say to you, rejoice. So that as we press forward with the gospel, we do it with a sense of joy. We do it with understanding the privilege it is to have Jesus in our life and to share Jesus with others. Think, think about the, the presence of Jesus and the salvation of Jesus and the forgiveness of sin and that my name's in heaven. I think about those things and I think, man, I want someone to go to heaven with me. I need to share the message of the gospel. I need to be busy laboring in the work and I need to do it with a sense of joy. Paul, again, he's not writing from a nice plush office, writing literature for the church at Philippi to teach all their people. He's writing from prison. He's writing after having been beaten in Philippi. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always, even in prison, even through the hardship. I don't know what you're going through in your life, but Galatians 5 tells us that one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in us is that the Holy Spirit produces joy. The Holy Spirit produces joy. I heard about the little girl who was learning John 3.16. Sounds like one of our uh, kids that are in Awana. She was learning John 3.16, and she, she came to the end and said that whosoever believes in him should have ever-laughing life. 
Listen, we all know that life has a lot of sorrows in it. We've been through pain. And it's not always about laughter. But there can be a deep sense of joy in our heart, even when things around us are challenging and difficult. When our boys were little, I used to drive them to school. And one morning as I was dropping them off in the car rider line, I was watching this woman just tear into her kid. I mean, finger a wagon like that, and the kid's crouched over against the door, and finally he opens the door and gets out. And I thought, man, what a horrible way for a kid to, to go to school. I thought, man, who'd want to be his teacher right now? That looks, that looks tough. I mean, he's just been pounced on by his mom the last two minutes that he was with her. So I thought, you know what? I need, to, I need to have fun on the way to school with the boys. And so I started coming up with crazy ideas. Like, we had opera day. So I printed out the words to songs like O Solo Mio, and we'd put it in the CD player, and we'd, we'd sing. We'd sing opera songs, or we would have dance day. We had to keep our seatbelts on, but in the car, you were to dance. And we would have sing day, you know, where we would play something, and everybody... These were fun things. Why? Because I wanted them to go to school with a sense of joy and happiness and delight that, you know, school sometimes wasn't always the funnest anyway, but at least they could think, man, you know, I'm walking out of the car with a pep in my step knowing that I've been able to laugh with my brothers for a few minutes. It was important. And Paul says for believers, because we have Jesus in our life, there ought to be a sense of joy in our heart. He says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then he says, I want you to stand together in grace. Stand together in grace. Verse number five, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all or be known to all. The word gentleness there pictures forbearance or patience or tenderness or kindness. You know, as you're moving forward, you know, we have the tax of the world and we're moving forward with the message of the gospel. We're standing together. We're moving forward. We're moving forward with joy. But we find that the world often can hate our message. The world can often persecute. So what does Paul say? I want you to be gracious and I want you to be patient with those people who don't understand the truth of the gospel. That's what he's saying. Let your gentleness, let your graciousness, let your patience, let your forbearance be known to all. Your life should look different because you know Jesus. It should look different. Even when someone opposes you or disagrees with you, you don't have to lose your temper. You don't have to lose your testimony because your gentleness is is on display. Even the Proverbs, it says that a soft answer turns away wrath. Not losing control. So how can we remain in this state of graciousness and patience with people who are are opposing, persecuting, ugly to us? And and can I just say, as, as we think about standing in grace, sometimes we have to hold each other accountable in these areas. Are you being loving as you go out into your workplace? Are you showing love when someone uh, says something against you? Are you blessing those who persecute you, as Jesus would say? But what makes us be able to hold on to this? Notice with me in verse number five, where he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. And then it says this, for the Lord is at hand. 
we stand together with confidence. When he says the Lord is at hand, that gives us the picture that the Lord not is at hand in coming, but that he's at hand as in here. The Lord is here. He's with me. He's at my hand. He's right there with me, right alongside of me. So that when I stand and I'm walking forward with joy and there are people who oppose, I can oppose them with grace and I can oppose them with confidence because I know the Lord is with me. In Psalm 34, 18, it says that the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. In Psalm 145, in verse number 18, the Lord says, he's near to those who call upon him. How near is the Lord? How near is the Lord in your life? Well, listen what the scripture says on the nearness of the Lord in your life. Before you ever take a step, do you know what the Lord told the children of Israel in the Old Testament? Before they went into the promised land, crossed the Jordan River, went into the promised land, as Moses is laying out the book of Deuteronomy to Joshua and the next generation, he says in Deuteronomy 31.8, and the Lord God goes before you. And that's the confidence that we can have, that as we walk through our life, that God is going to go before me. Isaiah, the prophet in Isaiah 30.21 says this, Your ear will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. The picture is, is God speaking from behind saying, hey, this is the way you're supposed to go. So the Lord goes before us, the Lord's behind whispering saying, this is the way, walk in it. In Psalm 139 and verse number five, it says the Lord has hemmed me in and around. The picture is, is that he's hemmed us. He's, he's come in in front of us, behind us. He's all around us. So the Lord goes before us. He's behind us. He's around us. He's above us. In Matthew chapter six and verse number nine, he is the Lord, our shepherd. In Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse number 27, it says the eternal God is our refuge and underneath us are the everlasting arms. Now get this picture. If you you want to walk in confidence, get this picture. When you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, when you live life tomorrow, when you face challenges tomorrow, the Lord is the one who goes before me. The Lord is the one who stands behind me. The Lord is the one who is around me. The Lord is the one who is above me. The Lord is the one who is beneath me. But let me tell you something even greater than this, greater than in front, behind, around, above, and below is Second Second Corinthians 6.16. And he says this, And I will dwell among them or dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. God said, I will dwell in them so that not only do you have God in front of you, behind you, above you, around you, below you, you have God in you. If you know Jesus Christ, he's in your life. What more can God do? What more can God do to bring us confidence in that? What more can he do? Oh, let me forget. One more promise. Hebrews 13, 5, he says, and I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Never. Never. So I can have confidence in my walk tomorrow. I can have confidence in my walk today. You know what? I'll just be real honest with you. The Lord says he'll never leave you nor forsake you, but let me just be real honest and my wife will attest to this. There are times I get tired of being around people. I do. I get worn out. I'm tired. Last Sunday night, busy day at church, came home. I went to the subway, grabbed me a sandwich, came home. 
Didn't feel like talking, been busy, tired. So this is what I did. Ate my Subway sandwich and I turned on uh, the DVR because I had DVR'd the Battle Hawks game. So I watched the Battle Hawks game while I ate my Subway sandwich and I didn't feel like talking to anybody. That's what I did last Sunday night. Can I tell you, there's never a moment that God doesn't feel like being close to you. And let me tell you one other thing about the Battle Hawks game. On the way home, I checked my phone and I knew we won. So when we fell behind in that game, no panic, no worry, no concern. Why? I already knew the score. I already knew we won. Listen, if the presence of God can't bring confidence in your life, why don't you let the victory of God bring confidence in your life? We win. Believers win. If you have Jesus in your life, you win. You win. What more can God do? I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm around you. I go before you and you win. What more can God do to give us confidence in that? So why is it that sometimes we as believers walk around so defeated? Stand together in confidence. He says, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. But you know what? The Lord knew that even though he made all those promises to us, that we'd still get anxious. So that's why he wrote verse number six, that we stand together in prayer. We stand together in prayer. Notice in verse number six, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What does he say? Well, he gives us an instruction, and the instruction is that we are to be praying people. I think prayer is the greatest untapped resource in the church today and in believers' lives today. So the instruction is, is pray. Pray about everything. So that's, that's what he says. Now, now, slide with me back to verse number six and just, just look at it closely. He says this, be anxious for nothing. He gives us the instructions, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. The instruction is pray. He says, do not be anxious. Anxiety can be real. It can be a real challenge in our life. So he says, I don't want you to be anxious about anything. I don't want you to be anxious about it. But I want you to pray about everything. That when those moments of anxiety hit us, we lift them to God. We know that the God is the God who goes before us, is behind us, is around us, is above us, is below us, is in us. The God who created everything, the God who sustains all things, the God who is absolutely faithful, the God who can never fail. Now, obviously, there are times that physiologically we we may have to, to have a little help along the way, go see a doctor. But I'm just saying for everyday average anxiety that we face in our life, Paul says, don't go there. Instead, I want you to pray about everything. And I want you to do that with a heart of thanksgiving. Why do you think Paul makes a big deal out of thanksgiving? Because when we think about thanksgiving, we think about all the things that God's already done. So he says, be thankful. 
that we lift up our prayers and supplications with thanksgiving so that we're thankful. God, thank you that you brought me through this last trial. Thank you, God, that you've always sustained me. God, thank you that you provided for me. God, thank you that you gave the strength for that. God, thank you that you provided finances back in the past. God, thank you that you did this. God, thank you that you did that. And when you remember who he is and all that he's done, then you can stand and say, look, God, this anxiety is here. It's real. But Lord, I just lift it to you. And God, I lift it with thanksgiving because I know you are in control. The instruction is pray. But then notice verse number seven, we see the consequence. And the consequence is this. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall guard your heart and mind. The consequence is peace. The instruction is pray. The consequence is the peace of God. And it passes and surpasses all the human understanding that we can bring to the table. God can work in us in ways that no one else can. God can bring peace when it seems like peace would be impossible to find. And notice he says that the peace of God, which guards your heart and mind. Paul knew what it was to be under guard. He was strapped to a Roman soldier right then. He knew what it was. He had watched the, the, the dozens of Roman soldiers that were around the Caesar and around the Caesar's household and around the palace. He had seen, he knew what it was to be protected. And he's saying, look, the, the, the peace of God is going to guard. It's going to be like soldiers standing in front of your mind and standing in front of your heart so that you can experience his peace. Then, as we think about standing together again, let me just get this picture in your head. We're standing firm, verse number one. We're standing together. We're united. We're laboring in the gospel, verse number three. We're laboring with a sense of joy. As we walk through that challenge and we go through that, we're, we're enduring hardship with patience and forbearance and kindness. And we know that we can move forward confidently because the Lord is at hand. And when we face challenges along the way, we can pray about them. And then verse number eight and verse number nine, the picture is, is that we need to stand together in integrity. Stand together with integrity. What he does there in verse number eight is he lifts out the things that we are to think on. And then verse number nine, he lays out how we are to live. I wish we had time, but we don't have time to jump into all the truths in verse number eight. But let me, I'm going to wrap this up. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue... If there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Think right. Think right. Listen, let's get our eyes off of our phones, off of our TVs, binging stuff. Why don't we get our eyes a little bit more in God's word so we can experience his peace? So that the things that are just and pure and lovely are the things that we're thinking on. And then verse number nine, notice how Paul expounds. And he says this, the things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. So he says, not only are you to think right, but then you're to act right. The things that you've watched me do, the things that you've listened to me teach and preach on, the things that you have watched and saw and heard and received in me, do it. I wonder, I wonder, parents, can, can we say to our kids, verse number nine, 
The things that, that you're watching me do, I want you to do that. And the God of peace will be with you. I wonder, can we walk into our school or can we walk into our workplace and say, hey, man, you, if you just follow my example, you do that and the God of peace will be with you. You're a soldier today. You're in a battle. You're called to stand fast in the Lord. And you know what the challenge of the church today is? We have way too many soldiers who have gone AWOL. They're absent without leave. They've checked out. They're no longer in the fight. They're no longer pressing forward. And God is calling us to stand, to step forth. And I believe that there will be a day when the Lord rewards those who have fought the good fight. Are you going to be one? Don't say. You won't say, well, Lord, no one told me. Somebody told you today. Will you fight the good fight? With that, let's pray. God, I pray that we would be people who fight the good fight. That we would stand fast, stand together in unity. Lord, with a, a heart to labor for the gospel. Rejoicing in you. With patience and confidence and prayer. With integrity. And to the name of Jesus, the name above all names, God, work in us. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. I've spoken mainly to believers today. And as you stand, I, I want to ask you today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, what is so precious in your life that you would miss being forgiven of sin and having your name written down in heaven for? If you don't know Jesus... We'd love to talk with you today. Pastor Jerry will be here. I'll be here. But many of you, somewhere along the line, you have forgotten the spiritual life is a battleground. And you're an AWOL soldier today, and God's calling you and saying, look, your life, your influence is too important for it not to be challenged. So today you were challenged. How are you going to receive it?